I loved Bob. Bob was a great guy. Do you know why worship services in the United States were traditionally held at 11 o'clock? Because of Bob. And people like him. Bob was a dairy farmer. And no lie, that's how church got started at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Because it gave the dairy farmers time to get up, milk the cows, get changed, and get to church. That's why we have church at 11, because of Bob and people like him. Well, Bob was this really great guy and totally committed to the church. We spent time with him, just loved him. But we decided that we wanted to change the time of church. And Bob is a dairyman. Now, Bob did very well for himself, so we actually had other people who were milking the cows for him. But 11 o'clock was so ingrained in Bob that he was one of the people who was most adamantly against moving church from 11 o'clock. And I finally said, why are you so opposed to moving church from 11 o'clock? And Bob said, can't people just dedicate one hour a week to God? And I thought, well, yes and no. They probably do, and they probably should, but what's the most important thing? Is it dedicating that hour at 11 o'clock or dedicating the hour at 10.30. Now, don't miss my point. If you're a follower of Jesus, you definitely should dedicate some time for God. But it doesn't have to be at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning because you don't need to milk cows anymore either. What ultimately was the problem, the situation for Bob, was the pull of the familiar and the comfortable. He liked having church at 11. It's when church had always been, and he was comfortable with that. And because he was familiar and comfortable with it, it didn't allow him to see what God might be up to. That for other people, people with kids, maybe 11 o'clock wasn't the best time anymore. So he had kind of a, if it ain't broke, why fix it? But that might have just been from Bob's vantage point. It might have been broke, he just couldn't see it. So I want you to keep that in mind as we look at the passage that we're going to walk through today from Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 22. We're going to break it up into manageable chunks. Then they brought a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? So you have this pretty spectacular healing. There's a guy who is demon-possessed. He's blind and he's mute. And Jesus restores him, casts out the demon, and heals him. It's pretty stunning. I mean, it's a spiritual and a physical healing. And if you think about it, it actually restores him to community. It restores him to the community of God because the demon is cast out. And it restores him to the community of people who couldn't see or hear before. So this is a pretty big deal of healing and release and restoration in this guy's life. And the crowd is watching this and they see it. So what are the implications of what Jesus has just done? And what does this mean about Jesus? I mean, who is this man? And I've said earlier a couple of times that that's the question that Matthew in his gospel asks over and over again. Who is this man? And that's what the crowds start to ask. Can he be the one that we're waiting for? 
Now, we look back and we're like, well, duh, obviously, he's the one that you are waiting for. But just the fact that they ask, is this the son of David, tells us a little bit about what they've been expecting. So, son of David is an Old Testament term that means the Messiah, the deliverer, the political leader. He wasn't really expected to be a healer. He was expected to establish the kingdom again, and a brief aside, part of the problem that Jesus has is people expect him to establish their kingdom, and Jesus is really about establishing God's kingdom. So he isn't exactly what they're expecting, but they're like, look what he's doing. And so the crowd is beginning to wrestle with this and is putting some things together. It wasn't exactly what we were expecting, but is this the son of David? But there's also another option, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. But when the Pharisees heard this, heard what? When they heard the crowd say, could this be the son of David? Is this the Messiah? The Pharisees were like, oh, okay. This has gone too far now. We've got to put a stop to this. It's one thing if he's a sideshow, a novelty act, but if all of a sudden people think he's the Messiah, this has got to stop. Now, the Pharisees couldn't deny that a spectacular healing had happened. I mean, here's the man. And they can't deny Jesus' power because they all saw Jesus do it. What they can do is question its source. And if they're not prepared to admit that it's from God, then there's only one alternative. And that is that Jesus' power comes from Satan. And so they make a feeble and outrageous attempt to connect Jesus to Satan. It's only by Beelzebul that this fellow, and I love that, it's like the ultimate diss. Who are you again? But actually, that turns out to be the real problem, isn't it? They never figure out who he really is. It's only by Beelzebul that this fellow casts out demons. Well, who is Beelzebul? If you've ever heard of Beelzebul, it's probably because of that line from Bohemian Rhapsody, where the name is pretty close, Beelzebul, Beelzebub, tomato, tomato. What it is, is a way to say Satan without saying Satan. Like saying, he who must not be named, instead of Voldemort. So, they're trying to connect Jesus to the devil. Stop and think about that for a second. They're saying, this isn't God at work. This healing didn't happen because of God. This is Satan at work. And that's a pretty big accusation. What Jesus is doing is not a manifestation of good. It's a manifestation of evil. They're equating Jesus with Satan and actually saying that Jesus is under Satan's control. Now, this is intended to destroy Jesus' credibility. If his power comes from Satan, it's not just the healing that's called into question, it's everything that Jesus stands for, everything that Jesus is trying to do, everything that Jesus is teaching. And that's why it's going to get a pretty vigorous response from Jesus. But as I look at this tension that's happening and what the Pharisees are trying to do, the most important question that comes to my mind is, why did they want to attribute this to God? And I have a couple of thoughts about that. One is, 
I think that they have preconceived ideas of what God is like and how God works and the way things should be done. And these preconceived ideas kind of get in the way of seeing what God is actually doing. I also think, as I mentioned before, that Jesus is so not what they are expecting. I mean, the witness is all there, but they have something else they would rather see. And I think they've made God in their own image. And when they come face to face with what God actually looks like, I think they end up liking the God of their own creation. Those are a couple of possibilities and they're not mutually exclusive, but I think it actually comes down more to comfort and familiarity, like having church at 11 o'clock. And it occurs to me that when we look at the Pharisees and religious people, that people might fall into three different categories. Maybe you can think of more, I don't know. And it's hard to judge people's hearts, but you can infer a lot of things from their actions. So I, I think of people in this picture and also other people you know, in our day and age, um, some people are culturally religious, some people are comfortably religious, and then you've got the true followers. So let's think about this in the context of the Pharisees. So culturally religious in that day, you're Jewish because your mom is Jewish. That's how you get to be Jewish. You go to the temple on the days that you're supposed to go. You kind of enjoy the Jewish ethos of the place, what it means to live within the Jewish uh, community and its structure. You believe that you're a Jewish nation with a rich history and you want to remain a Jewish nation. You don't want to be a Roman colony. But I think the Pharisees are more than just culturally religious. So then the next category I can think of is people who are comfortably religious. And this might be where the Pharisees fall. They take their religion seriously, they organize their lives around it, they prioritize it, and they're comfortable in it. Because here's what I think the Pharisees want. They want to maintain their position in the society, they want to maintain a predictably comfortable routine where they know what the rules are and they know what's expected of them. And now you have Jesus who's threatening their cozy controlled world of tradition and is turning everything upside down. So I think they succumb to the pull of the familiar and the comfortable. I mean, things are changing fast. They don't recognize things anymore. They're afraid of where things are headed. They feel like they're on the slippery slope to losing everything they hold dear. Things are good for the Pharisees. If it ain't broke, why fix it? Well, it might be that it's broke, but the Pharisees just don't see it. William Temple, who was Archbishop of Canterbury in the middle of the last century, was very quotable. I'm going to quote him twice today. And he said, Pharisees, men who lived in the strength of a fellowship that had behind it the greatest religious tradition in all the world, but who, because they trusted more to their tradition than to the God who inspired it, were unable to recognize the still further call of God when it came to them. That, I think, is what keeps them from being true followers. They liked their comfortable tradition. They liked their positions. They liked knowing how things work, and it blinded them to the true purposes of God. So in order to preserve their construct, they make this outrageous allegation about Jesus, and that's what provokes Jesus' response in verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, 
Every kingdom divided itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Essentially, Jesus says, that's a really dumb argument. Because if Satan is attacking himself, it weakens him. It's like the, the devastation of friendly fire in a war. I mean, it's bad enough that you get killed, but you get killed by your own guys. It'd be kind of the same thing. And then Jesus says, and why are you just accusing me of that? Because there are other people out there that you know of who are driving demons out, and you attribute that to God. Why are you singling me out for this? And then here's the line to pay attention to in verse 28. But if it, is, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's the rub. The kingdom of God has come upon you, and you're rejecting it. You don't want the kingdom of God if this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And that is not what they wanted. And then Jesus says, in verse 29, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first tries up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. This sounds like one of those typical Jesus non sequiturs. I, what are you talking about here? And it gets back to Satan. He's talking about how, you know, it's not Satan who's giving him his power because then it'd be fine to get each other. It's dumb. But he said Satan is like a strong man who has a lot of possessions in his house, and you can't get his possessions unless you tie him up first. Then you can take his possessions out of the house. This actually is the gospel in a nutshell. This is what Jesus has come to do. Satan is the strong man, and the things that are in his house are people who are captive to evil. So Jesus has come to set the people free who've been under Satan's control. And he does this by binding Satan through his death and his resurrection. And then he can plunder his treasures, which are all the people who live under the control of Satan and of evil. There is evil in the world. We see it regularly. We've seen it multiple times this week. Horrific, horrific evil. And Jesus is in the process of redeeming people back from evil. Now, is it true that the church or people within it have perpetuated evil or have even caused it? Tragically so, it is. But that's because we're all still broken and in the process of redemption, of being removed completely. But I would far rather believe that there is a God behind it all using the church to heal the world than simply trusting in people to live up to their best selves and potential or believing that life is just simply hard and then you die. So Jesus is saying to them, if you can't see the good in what I've come to do, if you can't see the God whose heart is to set people free, not to make them comfortable, if you think what I'm doing is evil, then there will be some dire consequences for you. Jesus goes on in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit 
will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is a hard passage, but let me uh, do a little bit of work on it. What Jesus is getting at is that the Pharisees are refusing to see God at work. They've chosen their own traditions over what God is actually doing. They've rejected Jesus and have attributed what he is doing to Satan. They've chosen to be on the wrong side of the battle between good and evil. And it's this diametrical opposition to the good purposes of God, which is ultimately unforgivable. If you set yourself up to be anti-God, that's where the problem lies. Because what we believe is that God wills everyone to be saved. God sent Jesus in the world, into the world to save the world, but some people just don't want to be saved. And if you align yourself with evil and continually align yourself against God, that ultimately will be the thing that will trip you up. And verse 32 is often ripped out of context, and I think it's very important to be put into, into context that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven. Because I know there were times in my life where I was afraid, you know, did I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Did I say something bad? And I think if you're worried about that sin, there's a good chance you haven't committed it. But it's not, it's not what you say or if you have a, a, a thought or something like that. It really is that you have for your life's work set yourself against God or see the plans and the purposes of God as evil. I think that's what it's talking about. It's not a casual sin. It's a sin that ends up throughout pervading an entire life. And then Jesus says, verse 33, Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus has talked before about good fruit and bad fruit, good trees and bad trees. What Jesus is, is bringing in that's kind of new, he's talked about our actions before being the fruit that we produce, and now he's adding our words to that. And he does that because of what the Pharisees have just accused him of doing. So he's like, look at the evidence. The fruit, the deeds, or the things that we say, the fruit doesn't lie. And the Pharisees are not producing anything good. They're producing legalism, not heart change. Jesus, on the other hand, is producing good things, and the Pharisees refuse to see it. It's kind of a scary passage, depending on where you end up. So, let's make some points of application. Let's look at the types of people again, because if we bring that forward into our day and age, I think there are cultural Christians, there are comfortable Christians, and there are serious followers of Jesus. So, the cultural Christians well, the people that have perhaps some history of church involvement, and maybe now they come at Christmas or Easter or for something special, they're not opposed to anything, but they're not really involved either. 
They kind of like the feeling of the Christian culture. There's maybe some nostalgia there or for the good old days when America felt like a Christian nation. So there's some association, but not much life change. Now, don't get me wrong, we're happy when cultural Christians show up and we pray that something will happen to cause them to move to become serious followers of Jesus. But I think that's a real category. And then I think there's comfortable Christians. I think these are people who are more serious about their faith. They want to follow Jesus. They make an effort. They do good things. But the challenge is that they confuse the gospel with the way they like things done, like church at 11 o'clock. Or they get so comfortable in the routine that they can no longer discern what God is doing. Comfortable people, comfortable Christians aren't bad people. They're just comfortable and they've lost their edge. They'll settle for something that looks and feels Jesus-y rather than actually knowing Jesus. Like, we would never say, I'm not interested in new people coming to Christ. But I think we live it out all the time. We want people to come to Christ and let them come at 11 o'clock or whatever else we decide that we like. And I wonder how many people in a moment of extreme honesty would realize that what a lot of comfortable Christians really want from God is to just be comfortable and be left alone. If it ain't broke, why fix it? Well, it might be broken. You just might not be able to see it anymore. Second quote from William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury. The church exists primarily for the sake of those who are still outside it. And the serious follower of Jesus understands that. Because here's the thing. You can vote the straight ticket of whatever political party you've decided best represents the cause of Christ. You can campaign for whatever view of abortion you believe best characterizes the heart of God. You can tithe all of your income and, well, we'll just leave it at that, that would be great. But you can do a bunch of things and still not have your heart changed. They might look and feel Jesus-y, but you may never have been transformed on the inside. And as the longer we spend in the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen this over and over, where there's a difference between people who act spiritual or say spiritual things and people whose hearts have continually been changed. And Matthew brings up a couple of times, brings us up a couple of times, so that when we get to Matthew 25 and the parable of the sheep and the goats, and Jesus says there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, on that day, and I will say, I never knew you, that will end up being a surprise. And that's the result of being so comfortable, so tied to a system, so tied to the way that you like things, that you aren't actually able to see what God is doing. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, what do you really want from God? Number two, are you a cultural Christian, a comfortable Christian? or a serious follower of Jesus. Number three, what is one thing you can do this week to become a more serious follower of Jesus? Hi, thanks for watching. 
The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.